This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked product designer JT Trollman what he's learned about design since working at Facebook. Uh, since working at Facebook, I think uh, the thing I've probably learned the most is that collaboration really uh, equates to empowerment for making better decisions. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've learned to lean on the knowledge of data scientists, engineers, PMs, researchers, even folks in operations or so forth to learn how and why people think, think something or use a feature a certain way to better inform what I'm doing as a designer. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Base CRM is looking for a product designer. Facebook is looking for UX researchers for their growth and ad departments. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so go ahead and head over to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts also, so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for even more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters, including us. We use it to send out our monthly newsletter, which went out on Friday. We send out our weekly job alerts with MailChimp and other announcements and things like that. I've been using MailChimp now for about six, maybe seven years, and no other email service provider is better when it comes to functionality, customer service, and honestly, just cool stuff. I mean, figurines, socks, playing cards, pencils. I get a lot of cool swag from MailChimp. If you ever get a chance to tour their office, by the way, here in Atlanta, make sure you check out the Rainbow Room. You'll see what I mean. Um, sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it easy for you to find that domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. I have a new iTunes review to read here. This comes from Jonathan Conway from Australia titled Best Design Podcast I've Ever Listened To, which I'm excited to read this, so here we go. On and off, I've gone on podcast hunting sprees trying to find a good podcast in one category or another. A small number of absolutely outstanding podcasts have hung around in my subscription list while many have passed by. This podcast is one of those simply outstanding ones that is absolutely worth my time to listen to. Extraordinary stories, powerful insights into the design industry from the perspective of a marginalized group. Very inspiring and educational stuff. 
Only a handful of podcasts remain in other categories. Hansel Minutes in Software, Econ Talk and Economics, to name a couple. But this podcast is still the one and only design podcast I wish to listen to. Many thanks to Maurice and all of his guests. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jonathan, for that amazing five-star review. If you've gotten anything from the show, please, please leave us a five-star review and a rating on iTunes. It really means a lot. I love reading these. It just lets me know that people are listening to the show, that they like the show. So please do that when you get a chance. Now, like I mentioned last week, we now have a brand new store where you can buy Revision Path branded t-shirts for men and women, mugs, and buttons. Go to revisionpath.com forward slash store and, you know, get your shop on for the holiday weekend. To celebrate the opening of the store as well as for Independence Day, you can save $5 off your order of $30 or more by using the promo code 5JULY. I'll put that in the show notes as well. That's the number 5, J-U-L-Y. That sale goes from July 7th through July 12th, but if you want to go on and head over to the store and get something early, you know, I'm not mad at you. All proceeds from the store go right back into the show, and it really means a lot. Speaking of fundraising, here is our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we've dropped to 32 patrons for a total of $237 a month. I'm a little sad to see that number go down after last month, but I still want to thank all of you that have already pledged your support and your appreciation for the show. It really does mean a lot to me. We're just a few episodes away from our 150th episode of Revision Path. So if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy the guests, if you got any value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get access to great perks like early access to future episodes uh, and free Revision Path goodies. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 a month and it's a great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. All right, it's been a long intro, so let's go ahead and get on to this week's interview. I'm talking with designer John Lewis. John's the co-founder of Circa Victor. Just as a little bit of a warning, we did have some technical difficulties, so the audio is just a little bit glitchy. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is John Lewis, and I am a designer. I focus on building software. Uh, for the most part, but I work on a lot of other things too. So print, analog type things, but software is where it's at right now for me. And you also have a company called Circa Victor. Tell me about that. That's right, I do. <laughs> so Circa Victor is a company, I, we're an internet startup, and we incorporated a little over a year and a half ago. And what we do is we build tools for political professionals and journalists to follow how money moves in and out of our national system. And you say it's for, for journalists as well as for politicians, right. right? Yeah, yeah. The way that, you know, government and everything works is that, uh, you know, the oversight situation is kind of still built inside of government, obviously. Journalism plays a huge role in informing public on what's going on inside of government. So in, in a lot of ways, if you're building a tool that's meant to help people follow and understand public information, then journalists and media organizations are by default going to be a part of your user base. Uh, just because if you can make their job easier, then their world becomes a lot more colorful. And now where did the idea to kind of focus on the money and politics come from? Is it because of the current election season? Uh, well, okay, I would say I would say that that would be the case uh, under most circumstances, but I think it's because of this this election cycle happening to be the 
an election cycle after a major Supreme Court decision called Citizens United, which I'm sure lots of people are familiar with. But what so Citizens United sort of made it official that we can have unlimited amounts of money in the political system in terms of elections. And so th- this was passed in 2010. And like just with most Supreme Court decisions, they don't really sort of really feel the end of them until, you know, maybe a decade later. This one, this decision saying that you can have as much as you want flowing in and out of politics, that, that was something that, that took hold right away. So in the last presidential election, there was more money than there had ever been before because it was right after this this Citizens United decision. And uh, so we kind of looked at that figure and that, that, that moment and we realized, okay, well, we've got another election coming up and it's going to be even more than it was before. I mean, we're looking at a $10 billion election this cycle. Wow. And uh, I mean, and that's, that's presidential, that's Senate, that's House of Representatives, that's governors, sheriffs, everything. We'll loop it all together. It's more than $10 billion. One billion of, of that $10 billion is actually going to be flowing through one individual zip code in Washington, D.C., which is pretty crazy. But the thing that made us look at this was we kind of said, okay, well, what other $10 billion industry exists in the world that doesn't have tools and software designed to understand how that money is moving around? And politics does not have that. So we're kind of building tools for that right now. What's been the feedback that you've gotten so far? Well, <laughs> jaws hit the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Pants get really wet. I mean, it's it's tech and politics don't necessarily shake hands. Like, I mean, we were bootstrapping our company for a little under a year before we moved to D.C. And when we got here and we started showing things to people and we started having conversations, the general sentiment was, where have you been all my life and how can I get in bed with you was kind of like the situation, you know, because it's a town of relationships. And typically conversations start off with, okay, well, who are you and what can you offer me? You know, and our whole relationship from the beginning was, we know that you need something and we're here to offer it for you. And all we really want from you is to tell us what else we can do to make this better for you. Or tell me what keeps you up at night so that I can make it easier for you to do your job, you know. So the feedback has been extraordinarily positive on both sides of the aisle and also in in places that aren't even partisan. You know, when you're talking about clean energy super PACs or unions or things like that, you know, like uh, being able to monitor how money is flowing is actually a huge leg up for a lot of people. Now, you just said that, you know, politics and tech don't really kind of shake hands. And there have been designers that I've had on the show before that have sort of spoken to that as well, that design and, you know, civic type ideals and ventures, they just really don't go together. Why do you think that's the case? I'm coming from the perspective of like someone who, I mean, we moved our company from San Francisco, right? Which is like a crazy thing for a lot of people to swallow, you know. Like when we tell people in in DC that that we started in San Francisco, they're like, "Why would you ever leave?" You know, that seems like a really stupid idea. Mm-hmm. And so we we have to explain it to them in the most layman's terms possible, where we say, "Okay, well, we had an idea that we know was valuable to you as a politician or a journalist or somebody that's running a campaign or or something like that, and we're able to explain the value of that to you." 
and we can illustrate those points and design all kinds of solutions around them, and you're automatically going to understand what direction we're headed in. But when you're talking to uh, venture capitalists and you're talking to people that sit around all day and tweak pixels on a social networking app, their sentiment is not leaning towards the long tail impact that this sort of like solution has on the world as a whole, because you know they're thinking about everything in, in like sort of three to six year cycles, you know, mm-hmm. let me build a company that's going to return 10x in three or four years, right? Like, let me become a unicorn really quickly, you know, like in politics, you don't get a unicorn in three years, you know, it takes a really long time to move the needle. But politics understands that technology moves a lot faster than politics. And so because of that, they're never quite synced up, you know, different wavelengths in a lot of um, and that's not to say that there aren't technology successes in the political world and vice versa, but they're definitely difficult to spot. And the ones that we look at and say, that looks like a really great relationship or that looks like a huge win for both sides, it's typically not the case. A lot of the big technology startups that are killing it and crushing it in the political and government world, a lot of people don't even know about or talk about because they don't dabble in the space that you know we as people that look at consumer tech even consider to be a part of that ecosystem. What do you think each of those industries can sort of learn from each other? Oh, man. <laughs> I think that tech can learn a lot from politics. I think uh, tech is already starting to grasp that if you want a billion-dollar company, if you want to start and maintain your standing in the world as as a company that's able to do good or even do bad or anything, you need to have a relationship with the government no matter what. I mean, that's not just... I want to do my taxes. You're talking about being able to pass legislation that keeps your industry alive, which is what Uber is trying to do all the time. You need to be able to influence your users and understand what the ecosystem looks like, which is what Airbnb is constantly trying to do. And I think that, so we're seeing that right now, but I think that government from technology by sort of thinking about like, how can we be more lean? How can we stop, you know, sort of building these redundant systems on top of each other to the point where it takes so much time to get something done, you know, because, because technology moves so fast, other industries are enamored by, by its success ratio. You know, they're just like, why can't we move that quickly? And that's because it's the, the inherent spirit of technology is that it's going to move quickly. And if you have a bad idea, you throw it away. And, and that's not necessarily the case in government and politics. You know, you sort of have a great idea. Somebody else thinks your idea is terrible, but you need their support. So you change your idea, you know, to, to mm-hmm. cater to those people. There's a more elegant way to do that. And, and that's sort of like, I think the lessons that we can learn on both sides are, there, there's a synergy there. But it's difficult to explain to one side or the other. You know, you need to get a lot of people in the room together to talk about those things at the same time. Because if you don't understand what the problems are on either side, you know, then they're speaking into a vacuum. And sort of like you're saying with those relationships, I guess that's why it was important to move the business out there to D.C. so you're kind of in the thick of Absolutely. It. Yeah. I mean, uh, in California, we had a great – I mean, we, we loved being there and everything. I mean, it was cool. I mean, I like California. It's nice. And I got a lot of work done uh, while we were bootstrapping and everything. But I was I was also surrounded by distractions, you know, all the time. I'm constantly seeing my friends and they're working on all kinds of cool stuff. Everybody's like talking about all these new apps that are popping up. 
in that little bubble, you know, and the whole world that I'm paying attention to, you know, every day, instead of opening up designer news or TechCrunch, I'm opening up the Washington Post and the New York Times. And I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to learn who these, these people are and trying to get my finger onto the pulse of government and all of that. And, and now that I'm here, I don't have to do that. I can just walk into a bar and have a conversation with the random person and we can instantly be talking about some bill that just got passed or we can talk about, you know, what candidate is going to drop out of the race next week. Those are conversations that you can only really have in DC. So tell me kind of what's a typical day like for you at Circa Victor. I know with the work that you're doing and you're kind of also monitoring this, you know, crazy campaign season right now, I'd imagine that your days are pretty varied. So a typical day for me, I mean, uh, so I'm a founder of the company and I am the chief product officer. So it's sort of my to understand what the political climate is either bubbling up towards or like what kind of what gaping holes exist that we can fill with technology so so my day usually starts with with just following as much news as i can so i'll grab a coffee and i'll sit down and i'll read all my emails and i'll you know i'll check in with you know whatever little areas of information that i need to and then i'll just head back to uh we have a hacker house in capitol hill i'll head back there and then you know all of our our squad will start to like you know filter in and we'll we'll start the day with a scrum um, we'll talk about, you know, what are all the things that we need to make sure happen this week. And we make sure that that's in context with, you know, our 30-day plan that we have, you know, because we have like sort of a shipping cadence for how we release everything out. But uh, after that, it, it's basically just like, let's figure out like what chunk of the day we can go heads down and dive into like really, really minute problems. Because we spend like the first half of the day is a lot of like really macro problem solving. And then we spend like sort of after lunch, you know, it's it's just like just put your headphones on and like concept out some 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 solutions or something like that and that's assuming that we don't have some kind of meeting you know with a client or with the news media or something like that but that's a typical day and the week kind of unfolds in the same fashion as we get closer to the end of the week we start to materialize things a lot quicker because we have these sprints that we work on it's a lot i mean it's structured but it's a lot less structured than it sounds it's pretty organic actually yeah so with your work kind of really dealing a lot with politics and because politics, at least when it comes to campaigns, is something that is it, it comes and goes in seasons. Is this something that you think that you all will still be working on in a few years or is it kind of just something that you're working on right now based on the current climate? Well, the vision that we have is it's not specifically campaigns and elections as much as it is sort of money and politics in general, which is something that never goes away. It doesn't matter. I mean, election day plus one, you're talking about passing bills, you know, in December. And so at that point, you're talking about lobbyists, you're talking about public relations, you're talking about unions. All of these entities are constantly at odds with each other or trying to make something happen inside of the legislative world. And there's money involved in all of that. It's all sort of filed with the government so it becomes open data which means it's something that we have access to which means it's part of our roadmap <laughs> so the election is is a really big time for us to launch you know like to to like just be like hey we're here look at us we're on your radar but after you've sort of shown up and said okay we're valuable then people start asking questions about like how will you be valuable in my administration after i'm elected you know and that's uh that's sort of 
for for us. So with Circa Victor, is it like a, a dashboard that you provide to to clients? Like, what is the actual product? Oh man. Okay. So so we've got. I mean, I don't want to pump Circuit Victor super hard, but uh, like essentially, like what we're doing is so if you're participating in any, you know, federal race right now in America, and you spend money or raise money, uh, you have to file that activity with the Federal Election Commission, right? Right. So what we do is we work really closely with the FEC, and we're grabbing all of the raw data that goes into the Federal Election Commission. And this is like 42 different filing types that you can have when you interface with the Federal Election Commission. So what we do is we take all that information, which is normally locked away in PDFs. It's not searchable or anything like that. We grab it all, and we draw relationships between all this information. So I can tell you how Donald Trump is spending money in Wisconsin right now against Hillary Clinton down to the cent and its purpose and who it was spent with and all of those pieces of information. That's valuable if you're Hillary Clinton and you want to know, you know, whether there's an attack ad that's going to air next week. But it's also valuable if you're the New York Times and you want to talk about how Bernie Sanders said he never had any super PACs when really he's got like eight or nine and they're still spending money, you know, to support him. And I mean, maybe when this airs, that might not be the case, but I mean, maybe they'll be spending in support of Hillary. Who knows? There's stories in the data and we build a suite of products that users the ability to uncover that information. So it is dashboards, but we also offer an entire API to, uh, larger more sophisticated organizations that already have like giant terminals that they give to their employees that are going to search through you know any number of data sets you know? and so essentially like we're we're cleaning uh, work relationships between it and then we're normalizing all of it so that you're not looking at duplicates or amended filings i mean the government government data is not the sexiest or the easiest to work with you know so we're basically reverse engineering a whole lot of what goes on at the fec and turning it into something that's digestible easy to understand easy to discover and actionable you know so that you can actually go and do something smart with the information that you've got instead of just you know handing it to a data scientist and telling them to to make a decision for you do you think you all would ever get the product or maybe even make an additional product that would be something that's more consumer facing or do you think that's that's not a need right now? Well, that's kind of um that's sort of the job for the press. I like to think myself okay. like I think that um, the average person, I mean, myself included until, you know, maybe the last three years, maybe three years ago, I wasn't super concerned with, you know, like how a particular like politician is spending money down to the individual transaction, you know, but I, I, I've always been interested in gluttonous spending or, you know, misappropriating funds or spending money like in ways that like it shouldn't be spent, you know that's an ongoing conversation, you know, just like government spending is a pretty big topic and it's definitely up to, you know, trusted organizations to kind of uncover that and expose it, but also to sort of commend people when they actually do what they say they're going to do, which is also a thing that's difficult to do if you don't have a way to track how things are, are, are actually happening. So when it comes to like consumer facing like software, like myself, I'm not particularly interested in that just because I've done so much of it in the past. And right now I'm just dedicated to creating enterprise software in a space that doesn't have it right now at all. It's almost like imagining a hospital without ultrasound machines or clean syringes or anything like that. I mean, that's essentially like 
the battlefield that we walked into. We showed up in D.C. and we found out that the tech literacy is so low and the quality bar is so low and everything is analog. And I mean, unless you're talking about defense, we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're looking at a space that's just untapped software wise. And it, it's depressing, you know, because we've got we're picking our leaders and we're watching people that run our country and essentially, you know, by proxy are involved in running the world are making decisions based on bad information, you know. So if you can create an ecosystem where those people are equipped with the right information to make smart decisions, then I feel like we're doing a good job. So what are the next steps of growth from here? Make a billion dollars? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, no, like next steps from here are to just keep growing, you know. Like uh, we moved out here in February and we had a soft launch in April and, you know, the, the reaction was really great. So we started hiring in May and now our, t- our headcount is right around 20. So we're, I mean, we're doing doing really really well at the pace that we want to you know and like so we don't ever want to be like a massive company with like hundreds and hundreds of employees you know like we kind of want to keep things as small and nimble as we can and solve as many problems as we can at the same time so as long as we're kind of like adhering to that track we'll be hitting our marks let's go back a bit i'm really interested in kind of knowing you know, your life and how things were when you were in San Francisco and even before that, uh, when you spent time in Hawaii. But let's start in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So Circa Victor, I actually, I founded it with this guy named Justin Hernandez, who's like my homie. Shout out Justin. And Tyler Arnold, who is from Alaska. Super cool dude. Shout out Tyler. So Justin is from Hawaii and we met each other there and ran an agency together, blah, blah, blah. We had all this great stuff going on. And and Tyler, actually, we met him in Hawaii as well while he was on a trip from Alaska. And we all, all three of us wanted to work together. But if you fast forward to San Francisco, Justin and I both moved to San Francisco at the same time. Um, we took jobs at startups, basically. And so we left home and we started working at, at separate companies. And so like my, my whole journey to San Francisco was... I wanted to work on, you know, big consumer facing product stuff. You know, I was like, oh man, San Francisco is kind of like, it's like the Mecca for tech. And if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. And I just really, really want to surround myself with like brilliant people that are smarter than me and just like try, you know, I just want, I wanted to fail really hard. You know, like I wanted to put myself in an environment where I was outclassed as much as possible and just try to grow as quickly as I could. And I felt like, I I got what I asked for, you know, like I learned a lot of lessons. I learned from a lot of other people's mistakes, which I feel like is a great way to learn. But while I was there, I ended up roped into a a sort of, um, I guess you call them, uh, they're VC now. They they raised a ton of money this year. But uh, there's this, this crew called the Designer Fund. I met this guy named Enrique Allen. He's one of the founders. And he kind of asked me like, hey, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, like basically, you know, he was like, what, where do you see yourself as most valuable or most fulfilled, you know? And, and I just kind of told him at the time, I was like, I want to be like, I just want to work on lots of different stuff and like grow like my sort of my breadth of experience as much as possible. Because at that time, it was really, really important to me that I was able to work on a wide variety of projects, right? So he was like, great, that's kind of like what we fund all these different designer founded startups and our portfolio 
of companies is always looking for designers, really talented designers, hungry designers that want to solve really crazy problems. You know, so I was like, sweet, why don't you hook me up with one of them? So he pointed me in a direction to uh, to the startup called El- well, at the time it was called uh, Mind Snacks, which uh, so what they did was they they built language learning games for kids um and they were great i don't know if you remember any of these but they were like they're incredible like the art direction was like fantastic it was done by uh, pascal da silva it was like this goofy australian kid he's super cool and uh they but but they were they were in like a, a moment where they were like okay well we've got this great suite of software for for kids why don't we start to work our, our way up the age ladder you know like why don't we figure out like how do, how do we build cool apps that are going to help kids pass the sat you know, and I was like, I'm very interested in that. Like, I would like for more people to be smart, you know, like, I'm all about that mission, you know. So I talked to them. And, you know, we are we had amazing chemistry. And uh, the team was amazing. I mean, we're talking about just like some of the most talented people I've ever had the pleasure of working with. It was amazing. That was like the moment when San Francisco to me, like made a lot of sense, you know, when all the things that people started that, that I had heard people talk about, you know, brilliant teams coming together to, to make amazing things together. Like, I was like, whoa, yeah, this is what it feels like, you know. And, I mean, since then I've learned that it, it's really just hard work and talent that makes that happen. It's not so much the place that you're in. It's just that San Francisco has the density of those things all in one place. But my experience working on that, working in that ecosystem was really great. So what ended up happening is I kind of had the – the, the pleasure of being in the room with these guys as a as, as a teammate and you know we worked our way from from a nugget of an idea like you know how do we serve SAT test takers to why don't we just think about lifetime learners you know because if you look at an SAT student you know like your your user is they're really only going to be using your app for a year maybe at the most right and then after that they're gone you know, and then all of a sudden you got to onboard a whole new generation of users and the, the churn is just ridiculous, you know. So we were like, okay, well, why don't we open this up to everyone? Because, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure if you asked a 40-year-old person on the street to take an SAT, like they'd probably bomb it, you know. Like most of us would totally fail the math section. Like it wouldn't even be fair, you know. <laughs> so so we're like, why don't we do something about that? Why don't we build something that helps people speak more eloquently, write shorter emails, split the check in their head, calculate distance in their, like just based on sight, you know, all of these things that like we do every day, but we don't have a way to train our brains to do them. And and that that was like a really big deal for me. I was like, sweet, now I have a purpose here. This is awesome. So I worked on that project for a little over a year and we launched in 2014 and at the end of the year I, I got a tweet from one of my buddies from Hawaii and he was like he was like congrats man I just heard the news and I was like I don't know what you're talking about and he sent me a link and I and Apple had chosen us as an app of the year for that year and it was like just a like crazy humbling experience because I didn't even know that we were in the running you know like it just happened like that and then after that, I was like, I'm done with consumer stuff. Let me solve even harder problems, you know. <laughs> but uh, that was kind of like what – that was the closing like moments of San Francisco for me. And that's kind of like when I started working on Circuit Victor with uh, Justin and Tyler. And so talk to me about your time in Hawaii. Are you originally from Hawaii? Uh, no. So I'm an I'm a army brat. I okay. come from a military family. And if I, if I was serving, my mother would probably just be like – <laughs> she'd she'd murder me <laughs> but uh so i was born in germany 
and uh and when i was very little we moved back to the states and bounced around a little bit and so like i ended up going to like high school and everything in uh in the midwest which i hated just because you know i didn't feel like i belonged there at all and uh so then after after I, I got out of high school i graduated like a year early and i was like i'm getting out of here like i really want to go to art school but that's too expensive and you know but i really want like an international kind of like community around me and i just want to i just want to do i mean because i had sort of a fine arts background and everything and i had just begun to to like discover like what design can be for for my future right around when I was 16 you know so I was like okay well I need to do something that's going to be like the most drastic change that I can possibly make and I need to get out of the midwest so so I moved to Hawaii I left home and moved to Hawaii and made a new home for myself and from the moment that I arrived to the moment that I left was like kind of a I feel like a bigger transformation from from like childhood to showing up in Hawaii if that makes any sense like the no, that may, yeah that makes difference sense. is pretty massive um like I, I learned a lot of I mean I while I was in Hawaii I mean I actually met a I guess what you would call a world-renowned counterfeiter <laughs> Um, okay. so this guy, um, so I was selling, uh, I was, I was selling, uh, portraits on the street, you know, I was like sketching, you know, strangers and stuff like that, like Japanese tourists and stuff like that in, in Waikiki. And, um, so like people would come by and they would sit down and I would sketch them and they'd give me like three or four bucks or whatever. And I'm like, cool, sweet. Thanks. Um, so this guy came by and he flipped through my sketchbook and everything. And he was like, wow, you're just an, you're an incredible draftsman. And like, your lines are so clean and all your, your work is great. Like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, thanks, man. Who are you? You know, and he was like, he gave me, gave me his name and he told me to Google him. And he was like, I'll be back tomorrow. You know, just Google me. Let me know what you think. And I was like, okay, that's weird. You know, because most people don't really <laughs> say that to you unless they have, they really have something that they want you to see, you know? Yeah. So, so I went home and I Googled him and there was an article in Forbes about this guy who had been selling counterfeit, like, I guess what you would call woodblock prints, but Okay. I mean, we were talking about like a lot of different types of art. So he came back the next day and he was like, did you Google me? And I was like, yeah, I did. I did. I, I learned about like, you know, like your whole background doing all this stuff. And, and he was like, do you want to learn printmaking? And I was like, absolutely. I want to learn printmaking. Yes. You know, so like he basically was like, okay, well, well, I need an apprentice right now. And I will teach you how to carve wood blocks. I will teach you how to work a Washington press, which, like, on this, a side note, there's only, like, five of those in the world, you know? So I was, like, blown away. I was like, you have a Washington press? I mean, they, they weigh, like, three tons. And, you know, they're made out of, like, cast iron. And they melted them all down in, like, World War One to build tanks, essentially. It's like a Gutenberg press, but made out of iron. And I was like, wow, you have one of those? That's insane, you know? So I learned a lot about attention to detail and, like, craftsmanship from a counterfeiter, a man who essentially it's his job to fool the naked eye, <laughs> you know? I mean, I didn't myself counterfeit any artwork, and he wasn't really doing that while I was 
I mean, it was sort of like his past life, I guess. Yeah. But I, but he had all these these artifacts lying around, you know, like this amazing press and all of these skills and like his his vision was that he wanted to bring fine art to the average person you know like that's that was the way that he rationalized what he was doing you know but i learned a lot from him and he sort of like traveled around with his family and everything like that so after he left hawaii i started hanging out in sort of the tech scene you know i started doing a whole lot more freelancing and those sorts of things and eventually ended up opening an agency with uh Justin who i co-founded Circa Victor with and you know so that and then i started building an entity based on my freelance clients and all of that which i i hear is kind of like a common path <laughs> to starting a studio but yeah okay oh that's a crazy path huh it's an interesting path, I should say. I mean, yeah. it seems like you bring a lot of experience to the table just in terms of like life experience, and then you're able to put that sort of you know back into the product. When did you sort of first get excited about design? What was your first sort of spark for it? Probably like when I was maybe three or four. I mean, as far back as I can remember, like watching Looney Tunes, I'd say was the first time I really got excited about design. I mean, because I understood at that time that i mean sure this is magic happening in front of you i mean cartoons are magical it's such a big deal to me and like watching bugs bunny move was something that i wanted to understand how that happened you know and so i learned about chuck jones and mel blanc and bob mckimson and ollie johnston and all these all these milk call all these really really incredible animators that had existed you know long before i was born that had designed characters so that other people could make them move you know mm-hmm. like so you're, you're talking about creating a system for a moving breathing living object that you need to be able to manipulate and change based on a story that you're going to write and a joke that you need to tell and a voice that needs to come out of their mouth and all of that and and at that time like that's when i really really got interested in like drawing and painting and creating things that were kind of usable you know so i mean it happened at a really young age and i never stopped really like exploring that were your parents supportive of you getting into design i know you you mentioned kind of moving around a lot man well i mean i I, from like a sort of single mom situation you know so like my support was definitely you know like please don't do anything that's going to compromise your ability to survive you know like that's <laughs> basically like the the conversation you know it's like i trust you to make a, a good decision but i am worried about you that's like yeah. cuz I, I mean like anybody that goes on an artistic path is going to have you know, there's going to be some dubious situations that arise, you know, there's always going to be some kind of, because it's emotional and it's also technical, you know, yeah. like you, you have this inner struggle inside yourself that, that that's telling you, or I mean, maybe not with everyone, but definitely with me that you're not good enough, you know, like you're not good enough to be where you want to be, or you have taste, but you don't have the, the toolkit to execute, or you don't have the resources that you need. And like, for a really long time, I was in that boat until I consciously decided that I didn't want to be in that boat and I would create my own, you know, ecosystem around myself or I would put my, or I would myself in the path of people that would, you know, that we come together and like, you know, rise the tide for each other, you know, and like, 
I feel like when you do that, a lot of people stop start to worry less about you, and, and mm-hmm. they start to think more about you know, well, you have gravity now, you know, like you have gravity around you that's that's bringing people towards you that want to help you, that want to support you, and then all of a sudden, uh, the creative aspect just becomes the fun part, and and then the work actually is how do I maintain this gravity. You know, and then you start to worry about that. You got a whole other set of problems <laughs> once you start to have gravity. But, but yeah, my mom was definitely like, I mean, she's always supported my creative endeavors. You know, but but she's definitely always. I mean, to this day, she she thinks that you know the Koch brothers are going to drop a Brinks truck on me when I step outside of the house. You know, <laughs> it's not. I mean, lots of people are worried about the things I'm doing just because I took you know a creative solution and problem solving sort of uh, practices and brought them to a space that doesn't have them, uh, people are, are worried that that's not a thing that is going to be taken in, with open arms. But, you know, I'm kind of seeing that that's, that's not the case. What's the biggest compromise that you've had to take to sort of get to where you are now? Oh, man. On the record? <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> There's so many compromises. I'll just go. Th- okay. I'll go through a list. Okay. Real quick. I've worked for people that I have from day one felt were complete idiots just because I had to, because I had no choice, you know, doing just taking a project and doing work just because, because the more work that you do, the, the quicker you're going to get to doing the work you want to do. And, and like that starts to taper off and finding out when to say no is is a really really important skill but when you're just getting started there's a lot you gotta you have to eat shit for a really long time you know you have to pay your dues and then so i mean and this has happened i i've witnessed this at every stage you know like when, even when i took a job in san francisco the job i took was a similar scenario where it's like i'm gonna learn a lot about how to how to not run a business from working for this person <laughs> you know Mm-hmm. And then, but you also learn you learn a lot about what works inside of a dysfunctional business, which is actually a really cool lesson to learn because it's not it's very nuanced. You know, it's it's not very specifically uh, documented in, in successful businesses. And uh, so, a lot of the compromises that I've had to make have been sort of learning things. I want I don't want to say the hard way, but definitely learning them uh, at least once and and learning the lesson of not to make that mistake ever again, or to have the wisdom to learn that mistake from someone else. That's making that mistake before you do. I like that. That 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 is good to know. You know, like you said, when you're working somewhere and it's a bad business, but they're still, or it's dysfunctional, but they're still kind of thriving and making money. Right. It, it's interesting to kind of know what what is going on behind the scenes or that makes that. I mean, happen. You can learn a lot from a dummy. You know, that, that's not to say that. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to. I don't want to just like say people are stupid, but uh, I can definitely say like having the the ability to recognize when something is working really, really poorly and, you know, sort of saying, okay, well, this is how I would do it. You know, that's kind of how everybody works, right? Like everybody, anybody that's ever worked for, you know, a restaurant or a coffee shop or anything has an opinion about how the business should be ran better, obviously. But, uh, you know, if you say something and nothing happens, or if you propose a solution to something and nothing happens, or if you're being talked down to just because of someone's hubris or ego, then all of a sudden, you know, you start to internalize that and then you want to leave. You know, most people don't quit jobs because they hate their job. Most people quit jobs because of bad management, you know, and 
Ooh, say that again, please. Yeah, I mean, if you're a bad manager, I mean, it's a manager's job to remove obstacles, not create them. And yes. and if you're able to do that, then you're a great manager. You're also a great leader. And uh, like being able to recognize that through other people's failures, I feel like is 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 learning it the the hard way, the long hard way. I learned that the long hard way. If someone had told me that when I was 16, I probably would have accomplished a whole lot more a lot earlier. You know, if I hadn't have been looking at my managers as people that need to teach me how to do things correctly instead of learning how to do things incorrectly because they're doing things wrong, you know, and like that's it's, it's twisted and it's convoluted. But that's the sticky universe and all of its foibles. What do you think it means to be a designer today, knowing what you know now? Well, today, I, I, it's constantly being redefined. It's crazy. I mean, I think the, the fact that the design is uh an industry that has so many different touch points means that it's a constantly evolving industry, which I love, you know, I mean, and, and when we say design, I mean, we're talking about industrial design, we're talking about software design, we're talking about print, everything. I mean, print is kind of set in stone for, for where it is. I mean, there's, there's some people that are really pushing the boundaries for what print can be just because, you know, you can, you can infuse technology into it, which is really great. But design as an industry as a whole, I think, has never been healthier. So what it means to be a designer now is only really defined by who the next designers are. You know, like there are kids today that are, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old that are sort of experiencing, you know, all of these crazy things that we think are really cool today. Um, You know, um, they're experiencing them at a super young age. So if you can only imagine, like, what that's being baked into their subconscious as children. So that's going to be their their first I like their first impression of of what design can be, you know. So when they become, you know, when they enter the workforce and or they make the conscious decision to become a designer, that's going to be the bedrock that they stand on top of, which is crazy to me. You know, like there are there are kids out there right now that, you know, if I could hire them, and in my career path, see them become 10 times the designer that I am, I'll die happy. You know, like that would be amazing. Yeah, I tell, you know, designers coming up now, like you have so much more available to you in terms of resources and education and things like that. I mean, when I think about just, God, maybe even just 15 years ago, mm-hmm. how much of a barren wasteland the web was when we think about design. But I mean, I know your answer, you're talking about sort of design, you know, as a whole. I'm thinking specifically, though, about graphic design, web design, et cetera, because we're so young mm-hmm. as an industry and it's growing so fast. And because of how it's linked in with technology, it's also becoming such a ubiquitous right. factor. You know, I think that the, the, we're right now in the last year or two years, maybe we're talking about a really tangible, legit crossover from just technology and web design and its influence all the way into physical products and you know all of that you know like fitbit might have been like a mainstream smash hit you know but we're uh, maybe i mean maybe there might be like a couple other like hardware you know tools where like you're going to monitor the i mean like a refrigerator is not something that you're going to log into your web page and just be like okay well i'm out of milk let me get some more you know like a smart fridge may not be a but design for for the web is also a great sort of uh, transition to designing interfaces for cars or designing an interface for 
you know, uh, airport kiosk or something like that. Like they're very similar because we have this this advent of touch and force feedback, and I mean everything is on a screen right now. So yeah. well, there is a level playing field. It's either on a screen or it's audible. Those are really the only two like spaces that you get to play in. Virtual reality is a whole nother one. You know what I mean? But these these things are there's these crossovers and designers play a role in all of them. You know more than they ever have before. And I think it's important to to realize that like in the same way that print designers, uh, there was an age where they didn't want to embrace technology. They just wanted to keep being print designers. And look what happened to those guys. You know they they were either really good at their job and they're still doing it today, or they were forced to work on web things and they sucked at it or maybe they the liking to it and they're maybe still doing it today or they're gone you know mm-hmm. and i think that that is the edge that we stand on right now as i mean if you're just strictly talking about web design product design and inside of a browser that that's kind of the next leap forward like if you really want to push yourself do something that's outside of your comfort zone you know like work on something that is in one of those new spaces that is really really interesting work if you've only ever worked on web do something in mobile. If you've only ever worked in mobile and web, do something in a wearable. You know, like th- th- these are these are spaces where just experimenting in them is going to pay off huge dividends five years from now, when that's where all the work is going to be. Now I know that you lived in Honolulu for a while um, in Hawaii, yeah. and you rep Hawaii so hard, <laughs> like like you're you're always talking about aloha and and pineapples. Like I can tell that there's that spirit that is sort of this intrinsic part of your work. Kind of talk to me about like your design style. What are some of your influences? Oh man. So that's like actually really, that's a really interesting like question, like design mixed with Hawaii. Cause so the university of Hawaii has a really, really amazing uh, graphic design program. Right. I mean, I'm fond of it uh, and it doesn't get the, the props that it deserves. So does their architecture program actually. But um, it comes from a pretty cookie cutter Bauhaus sort of like, international style kind of school and that is something that like you wouldn't really pick up on if you just visited Hawaii and showed up and you're just like okay well this doesn't feel European at all right and that's because the program is super new so there are actually like a lot like the design industry the, not, not industry but the design community in Hawaii is, is, is actually really minimalist and clean and and we have all kinds of conversations about how the culture is 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 something that's that's poorly represented in mainstream design in terms of like local design work you know and i think my own personal style if i had one like if i was going to design like you know a poster or something like that and really be expressive with a message it's always going to be something that speaks to whatever the content is, but myself, I do gravitate towards like extreme minimalism and well, maybe not extreme, but definitely expressed minimalism and utilitary sort of functions. You know, like I'm a, I'm a huge fan of grids. I'm not a grid Nazi, but I'm definitely like I'm a grid kind of guy, and I I like to build inside of my grid until I get to the point where I'm bored and then I break the grid. And once the grid is broken, then I have something that I'm happy with, you know? And uh, like my designers out there will understand what I'm saying. <laughs> Other people will just be like, why would you break a grid? That's stupid, you know? But uh, like with graphic design style and all things, like it can be a fine art design. But I think uh, like right now, like I'm, I don't really have 
the elbow room to do things like that because I'm building software. And the only thing that I care about when I'm building software is am I solving a problem? You know? Yeah. And if I'm solving a problem, then I'm doing a good job. If I can make it feel really, really fulfilling when a user is 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 actually interacting with the software that I'm building, if I can make it enjoyable, then that's that's like another plus. If I can make it aesthetically pleasing, that's another plus. But it all starts with like, am I solving a problem for you? What keeps you motivated and inspired? Is it just the the work itself that you're solving these problems? Oh, right now, what keeps me inspired? <laughs> like knowing <laughs> right now, what keeps me inspired is knowing that I'm working with like hands down some of the most brilliant individuals on the face of the planet. Like that keeps me inspired. Like knowing that any one of us could be doing something completely different and and only be hitting our stride at a third of the pace that we're hitting it right now inspires me. Knowing that we're stronger as a whole than we are separately that's that's really inspiring you know like the design and the like I, I mean like i feel bad if i spend a day not moving any pixels around like if i do meetings and you know i'm i'm in slack all day planning things and stuff like that like i do feel bad design droughts suck but like what's really inspiring to me is is knowing that i, I i'm creating something that people want to be a part of and or if we're hiring people that want to be a part of that and then they go out and then they create that gravity around themselves you know like that i think that makes me so happy <laughs> that it's time to actually design something it just flies out of my fingertips it just happens you know which is great are there any other designers out there whose work that you admire that you look up to oh man yeah it does a lot of like movie poster design i can't remember i think his first name's ollie or something like that but uh ollie Murs? no no that's not it Anyway, scrap that. Michael Beirut is my favorite, one of my favorite designers. Is that Pentagram? That that guy, yeah. that guy's a monster. He designed the Saks Fifth Avenue bag, and uh, the new New York transit system. Like sort of, I mean, if you're in New York and you see those those big beautiful black kiosks that are on every corner that have all kinds of like awesome wayfinding, it's all set Helvetica. It's beautiful, based off the Massimo Vignelli. St- like that guy's a, that guy's crushing it. I'm I'm also a huge fan of like like in a, in a fantasy world where if I could do anything that I wanted I'm actually a really big fan of of people that work on motion graphics for for film, you know. So okay. there's this one guy Jace Hansen who does like interactive interfaces for film. So like the crazy interfaces that you see the Avengers using in the Civil War movie, for example. Like he's the guy that sits down and designs all of that, right? And like it's not something that you and I ever would ever get to play with and use. But it's, it's like a great exercise for, you know, how do I solve a problem right now, you know, that, that doesn't exist in the real world, but it does exist in this fantasy world. And I, I think that's really cool, you know, like it's something that I used to be really interested in doing, motion graphics and filmmaking, all of that. So there's a lot of motion graphic designers that are really amazing that I, I really respect. As far as like designers that, that I know personally that I really respect. There's a the a typography designer and letterer Jessica Hish. She's really, really cool. She's had a lot of really great advice for me. Daniel Burka, who is one of the biggest reasons why I left Hawaii in the first place. I probably would have never like gathered the muscle to swallow my love for home and leave to go somewhere else if it hadn't have been for that guy. 
why him specifically? So, so Daniel Burka is basically, I mean, like he's like the he was the lead designer at Dig for a really long time, and uh, now he's a, a partner at Google Ventures. And years and years ago, he came to Hawaii to give a talk to the students in the design program at. At uh, University of Hawaii, I never went to college, so I was never there, right? But at the time, I was running an agency, and one of my friends, who who was kind of new, you know, was like, "You got to have lunch with this kid. He's he's like one of the, the people that like while you're here. You should you should meet because you guys kind of you work in the same space, but you know, like he's got potential, you know." And I, I was I was like really flattered by just the fact that that conversation even happened, right? So we ended up having lunch. In, in Kaka'ako, like a block away from my studio. And I was talking to him about just like, you know, the the state of what we're working on, like the, the things that we're able to do. He asked me like, what kind of projects do you guys have as an agency? And I was like, well, we're working on, um, we're working on things in the travel and hospitality, you know, like we're building things out for like Hawaiian Airlines and, you know, different hotels and, and like, you know, all these different things like that, you know, and and I I told him that like, I'm just kind of tired of doing that because it's cookie cutter and it's not challenging. It's not fun. And I feel like I hit a ceiling and he was like, you need to move to San Francisco so that you can open up your net of, of opportunity, you know, and like, his basically his what he told me was that just because I want to grow something really big at home doesn't mean that I have to stay at home to do it. I can go away and I can do all kinds of really great things and I can put points in the scoreboard for Hawaii and then and then I can come back and plant more seeds if I want to, you know. And uh, at the time, it was really difficult to to sort of like see that without somebody saying it to me, you know. It's it's uh. I didn't want to contribute to the brain drain of small town, you know, where like all of the talented people in a lot of really small towns, they end up going to bigger cities to go work on things that are going to be more lucrative. And then maybe when they're 50, you know, or 40, you know, they come back home and they retire with their kids and they stay quiet, you know, I didn't want to do that. You know, I wanted to do something at home that was going to employ people and like grow a community of designers and engineers and stuff like that all Hawaii's three thousand anything. So like leaving home and being able to like put points on the scoreboard for Hawaii is something that Justin and myself both like are dedicated to doing. You know, like we didn't leave home so that we could be second place somewhere else. You know? Like we essentially are are out here in the wild <laughs> trying to find a way to to prove to everyone else that 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 is supporting us back home that what we're doing is just as incredible and great as the 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 pedestal that the world puts you know San Francisco on and all of those sorts of things you know and like that that permeates throughout you know the community and I, I think it's it's difficult to to see it happen quickly without without a, a really really solid win, you know. So that's kind of like why we we started something. We we founded a company together so that we'd be able to to make sure that it's something that is sustainable for a long long period of time. So you can say, okay, well that there's Circa Victor and it came from Hawaii, you know, and like that's a really big deal for us because we don't have a whole lot of tech wins in a, such a small ecosystem, a tiny community. You you don't have a whole lot going on, you know. I'm like I could name on one hand like the tech influencers in Hawaii, and they're not. 
I mean, there might be people that you'd be surprised to hear about, and they might be people that you've never heard about at all, you know? And, like, that's baffling to me. There are so many incredibly brilliant people in this chain of islands that are just removed from the rest of the world because of proximity, which I feel is a crime. Yeah. If you weren't doing what you're doing now with Circa Victor, what do you think you'd be working on? <laughs> I'd be hosting with you. <laughs> No, I don't know. Uh, Wait, say, well, I'm sorry. You, you, it got, it got really glitchy there when you said that. No, I, I didn't hear it for real. I, I didn't. I didn't hear. I it. said I'd be posting podcasts with you. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> no, I, I would definitely, uh, like, if I wasn't working on Circuit Victor, I probably never would have left San Francisco. Um, and if I hadn't left San Francisco, I'd probably be working at Dropbox or something like that, to give you like the dry, shitty answer. But if I, but if I wasn't a designer, I'd probably be a writer or something like that. You know, like I'd probably I'd I'd be solving problems and telling stories. But I'd be using if I wasn't a designer, I'd probably be a writer or a journalist or or something like that. Because I I'd still solve problems. I'd still be a problem solver. I would just be uh I'd be solving problems with a different path. So just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience, you know, find out more about you and about your work online? You can find me on uh, Twitter at Umi Workshop. I have a website and you should go to it because it's, it's not very impressive, but uh, that's umi.io. And you can learn all about Circuit Victor at circuitvictor.com. And uh, I also publish all kinds of interesting tidbits about politics medium <laughs> so if that's your that's your thing and you want to look at a bunch of random numbers about how people are spending money that might be your spot all right sounds good well john lewis thank you again you know for taking time out for your day i know we had a lot of technical difficulties oh, yeah, it's just sort of it comes with the territory when you're doing podcasts like this but i'm really glad to have a chance to talk to you because you know looking at your your bio and the work that you've done certainly is super impressive but also i feel like there's a certain sort of soul and spirit that you bring to your work that i don't see from a lot of other designers uh, it's a it's a bit of a an esoteric kind of quality thank you so i i really wanted to be able to kind of talk with you and get ideas about you know not just how you started your business because i think what you're doing with circa victor is important as it relates to you know kind of putting technology and design into a way that it will help you know, civic good in terms of, you know, finances with politics and things like that, but also just your journey as a designer. I mean, like you said, kind of being able to move forward and do what you can do to to help make the world a better place is really important. So thank you again so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it as well, man. And I'm also grateful for everybody that's listening right now. You guys are the best. Thoughts of love And that's it for this week. Big thanks to John Lewis and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about John and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude may be playful, but their business is serious. 
Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp, send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps us get up in those iTunes rankings for design podcasts. And I'll read your review right here on the show, just like I did at the top of the show, the Jonathan Conway review, which was really great. Also, don't forget, uh, check out our store, revisionpath.com forward slash store. Make sure you buy some t-shirts, some mugs, some buttons. Um, and the sale that we have going on that starts on July 7th, remember the discount code for that is 5July. There's going to be a link to that in the show notes as well. Provision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.